Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. So Isaiah 43, and we're going to read 13 verses, starting at verse 1. But now, this is what the Lord says. He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burnt. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt for your ransom, Cush and Seba in your stead, since you are precious and honored in my sight. And because I love you, I will give men in exchange for you and people in exchange for your life. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. I will bring your children from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, who I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Lead out those who have eyes but are blind who have ears but are deaf, all the nations gather together and the peoples assemble. Which of them foretold this and proclaimed to us the former things? Let them bring in their witnesses to prove they were right, so that others may hear and say it is true. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me, no God was formed. Nor will there be one after me. I, even I, am the Lord. And apart from me there is no saviour. I have revealed and saved and proclaimed I and not some foreign God amongst you. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, that I am God. Yes, and from ancient days I am he. No one can deliver out of my hand. When I act, who can reverse it? And the second reading is taken from Matthew chapter 14. And we're reading, sorry, that is on page 981 of the Pew Bibles. And we're reading Matthew 14, verse 22, through to the end of the chapter. And this follows on immediately from the, um, the story of the feeding of the 5,000 that we considered last week. Matthew fourteen twenty two, and so it starts immediately. Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went upon a mountainside by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat was already a considerable distance from the land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. During the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. 
Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and began to sink, beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You have little faith, he said. Why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. When they had crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized Jesus, they sent word to all the surrounding country. People brought all their sick to him and begged him to let the sick just touch the edge of his cloak. And all who touched him were healed. Um, hey, my name's, uh, my name's Andy Fernley. I'm the student worker here at Fullwood Church. If we've not met, I'd love to meet you afterwards. I'll just be out on the door there. Um, I'm going to be just helping us to get into this, um, this eyewitness account from Matthew's Gospel together. So you might want to keep it open in front of you. Uh, and if you're a scribbler, if that helps you, you'll find, um, you'll find an outline just on these white pieces of paper. You can put, a bit, uh, put some notes in there if that helps you. Um, if it doesn't, you can just screw it up and put it in your pocket and pretend I never said anything but um, the main thing is that we get into Matthew 14 together. So why don't I pray for God's help as we come to look at it. Let's pray. Our Lord God, we thank you so much that here in the Gospels, that in the Bible we meet Jesus Christ, that we can see more of him, of his glory and goodness and power through the words of the eyewitnesses. We pray that this evening you would help us do that. Help us fix our eyes on him. And would you take our doubt and little faith and make us those who believe and worship him more and more. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, um, just a few years ago in 2015, um, shortly after the shooting in uh, Bataclan in Paris, um, Justin Welby, the Archbishop of Canterbury, created headlines around the world by saying that in situations like this, he finds himself doubting the existence of God. I wonder if uh, you remember that back in 2015, the headlines, Archbishop has doubts about God. And it caused a huge sensation. There was a range of different reactions in the media. There were those who, um, there were, those who were surprised. There were those who, um, who even seemed, um, in a weird sort of way, quite happy about it, something like that. But um, I wonder what you make of uh, that sort of um, expression. I wonder what you make of that story, that a senior Christian leader like the Archbishop of Canterbury, the leader of millions of Anglicans across the world, would say that they sometimes feel uncertainty and hesitation in their faith in God. Uh, the quote from the article uh, read, in situations like this, sometimes I find myself being, self asking God, if you're there, why? If you're there, why? I wonder what you make of it here this evening. Uh, it might be that you're, um, you're sat there and you're thinking, surely not. Uh, I mean, of course, in the early days of your Christian faith or looking into things, you might feel doubts. Um, but to, um, to doubt the existence of God or the identity of Jesus or maybe the trustworthiness of the Bible, that's all understandable for a new Christian, but, but surely not for a leader like, like Justin Welby or something like that. Uh, it might be, on the other hand, that some of us are sitting there and we're thinking, actually, isn't that just refreshingly honest? that someone in that position would admit to having doubts. Because after all, 
you've had those sorts of thoughts. You've wondered if God really exists or if it's all true. I suspect that if we're honest this evening, most of us are probably in the latter of those two categories, aren't we? That actually whatever we think of um, the Archbishop of Canterbury and his expression of faith, that we know what it is to experience doubts. Whether we think it's appropriate for him to say it to the media or not, we know what it is to find ourselves asking those questions. Does God really exist? Is it really true? Now, in the chaos of life, in the, in, in the moments of complete and utter disorientation and disorganization and chaos, maybe we see someone close to us suffering or hear some argument that makes Christianity sound utterly implausible. Maybe we go to work day by day and feel like the only Christian among thousands of people. And just from time to time, if we're honest, there's a little voice in the back of our heads that asks us, what if it isn't true? What if God doesn't really exist? What if he isn't really good? I suspect that that's a bigger and more common problem for us than, um, than we like to admit. I mean, it can be hard, can't it? You come to church, you sing God's praises, you meet with other Christians, and, and it feels like it would almost be rude in amongst all of the sort of upbeat singing and praising to turn to a friend and say, actually, I've, I've had a pretty rubbish week because I've just struggled to believe that God even exists. And yet, let's be honest, as Christians, we do, don't we? I, I've had that little voice in the back of my head. If, you've, if you're a Christian believer and you have never had doubts, well, let me promise you that at some point you will. Because I think every Christian believer I've honestly spoken to about this has had doubts at some point in their life. And the good news is that Matthew 14 this evening, this passage that was read for us, is going to both help us understand those doubts and be the medicine that we need for them. In this section of um, Matthew's Gospel, he is trying to produce certainty, confident worship of Jesus Christ. He wants to prove to us with eyewitness evidence that Jesus Christ is the Lord God the creator and ruler of our universe. He wants us with the disciples in verse 33, have a look at verse 33, with those in the boat to worship him and say, truly, you are the son of God. Jesus has been teaching in Matthew 13 about the kingdom of heaven and now Matthew wants to prove for us that he saw that Jesus really is the king of heaven come to earth and taken on a human nature. He wants us to be convinced. But here in this text, he wants us to be convinced from a place of doubt and uncertainty. Have a look at um, what Jesus says to Peter in verse 31. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, why did you doubt? Here is a passage that will get into the, um, the reasons that we doubt. But, but better than that, it will show us Jesus and, and give us confidence to believe in him. That deals with our doubts. 
And so come with me to uh, Matthew 14 and verse 22. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. So here is the scene. Um, around 15 to 20,000 people, 5,000 men and their families have crowded to Jesus. He's miraculously fed the crowd. We saw that last week, if you were here, and provided bread and fish from nowhere, from, from really a child's packed lunch. He's fed this huge crowd. And then um, at the end of the sort of the meal, he sends his disciples off across the lake. He sends the crowd away and he goes up the mountain quietly to pray. The scene is set. Verse 23, after he dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. And verse 25, during the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. It's a sort of understated description, isn't it, of a truly remarkable miracle. Matthew wants to show us here that Jesus is the Lord God who rules over creation Because he tells it in an understated way, and because perhaps we're familiar with the idea of Jesus walking on water, don't miss quite how remarkable this miracle really is. Jesus sends a boat full of experienced fishermen out onto the lake early in the evening. The storm buffeted um, the boat. Uh, Literally, the storm tormented the boat. And um, during the fourth watch of the night, so between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., Jesus goes out to them. So here the fishermen have been caught in this dramatic storm. They've been trying to get back to shore for, what, nine hours with the wind and the waves against them. And then here Jesus is able to just walk through the storm and over the water I don't know what, um, what defines a good holiday for you. Um, for me, the, the, base, the basic definition of a good holiday is that I get to swim in the sea, okay? So whatever else we do on the holiday, if I don't get to submerge myself in salt water at some point in the week, it's a holiday fail, okay? But now, um, if you've ever swum in the sea and you felt what it is to be dragged offshore by a riptide or, or caught in a current or for a storm to blow in and suddenly things are getting out of control and the waves are getting bigger and you can't quite get back to shore, well, you'll know the power of the sea and the power of the storm. I can think of an occasion um, swimming by a boat when I just, as hard as I swam, could not get the few meters back to the boat because of the current against me. And maybe you know what that feels like. And here is a storm that has kept this boat from getting back to shore all night. And Jesus just walks through the storm and across the waves. Only the one who rules creation could possibly do this. It is a demonstration of supreme and supernatural divine power. You see, if God created our world, and if that God in his kindness put in place laws of uh, physics and laws of nature, then that same creator could surely suspend or overturn them. And here, that is exactly what happens. 
a man does what only the creator could do, who is it that walks on the water and through the storm? Well, only the one who made the water and controls the storm. Divine and supernatural power on display. Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. Now, hey, if you were here last week, I talked about my RE teacher, who, um, he, he's the one who first taught me the, um, the bring and share lunch approach to the feeding of the 5,000. Um, you know the one, everyone gets out their lunch boxes and starts to share, and suddenly we're okay. And we looked at how much it doesn't line up with the evidence of the miracle. But I'm sure that the same man would have thoroughly approved of the theory that I've often read, that Jesus is simply walking out on a sandbar or a spit of land here. Have you come across that? Or, or maybe um, like the magician Dynamo around five years ago, it's a magic trick and he's simply, um, he's simply convincing people that he's walking on the water, but really there's sort of some kind of trick going on. Again, it simply does not line up with the evidence in front of us. First of all, you have a boat full of experienced fishermen. We've met them in Matthew's Gospel. They regularly work on the Lake of Galilee and we're being asked to believe that the carpenter, Jesus, knows about the spit of land that they are ignorant of. And then notice in verse 24 that they're not just by the shore, but a considerable distance from the land. John's gospel tells us that they were between two and three miles from land at this point. And so you see, this, this, is not, this is not a magic trick with a little spit of land just by the shore. We're right in the center of a substantial body of water in the middle of a, sto <clears throat> of a storm here. And what's more, <coughs> in, verse, um, in verse 29, Peter gets out of the boat and walks on the water towards Jesus. But in verse 30, he starts to sink and so now, is there a spit of land or isn't there? What's going on here? The only honest account of what's in front of us from the eyewitnesses is a supernatural demonstration of divine power. Who can walk on the water and through the storm? Only the one who made the water and controls the storm. Jesus shows the people that he is the Lord God the ruler over creation. But more than that, he doesn't just show the disciples, he tells them that that is who he is. Have a look at verse 27 with me. Jesus immediately said to them, take courage, it is I. Or more literally, take courage, I am. Don't be afraid. Take courage, I am. Don't be afraid. And of course, I am, in the Old Testament, was the great name for the Lord God. In Exodus 3.16, when, um, when Moses says to God, what's your name? The Lord God says, I am who I am. And that's how you shall know me, the I am. And here Jesus comes to the disciples and says, don't be afraid, I am and again and again in the Old Testament, we're shown that the only one who can control the waves and the raging storm, the only one for whom that is not an issue, is the creator, the Lord God, the great I am. He shows them and he tells them. And it is an impressive display because first century people were far more in touch with the dangers of the sea than we are. 
Do you know, in the first century, the waves and the storm were seen as almost a symbol of the chaos and disorder and evil of our world. The people that Jesus is um, presenting himself to, who he's showing and telling, were people who feared the storm as an example, a symbol of everything that is broken and terrifying in our world. And here he comes, literally putting his foot down on chaos and disorder and evil, literally tramping it underfoot and declaring, don't be afraid because I am the God who is sovereign over all these things, the Lord God who rules creation. Do you see, there is no chaos, no disorder, no evil in our world that is beyond the reach of the sovereignty of Jesus Christ, the Lord God who rules over creation. And that includes the week that lies ahead of you and the week that's just passed. It includes every friendship, every child, every illness, every pain, every suffering, every struggle, and every relationship that you know in life. Jesus Christ is the Lord God who rules over every aspect of our world. And here he sends the disciples into the storm precisely so that he can show them and tell them that this is true. Do you see, the eyewitnesses saw it. He rules. We can trust him. But I think that verse 27 shows us more than just that Jesus is the Lord who rules creation And it also shows us something about the character of Jesus Christ, that he sends them into the storm to reveal this to them. Have a look again at verse 27. Jesus immediately said to them, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Our first reading from Isaiah 43 had those great words of the Lord where he spoke to the people and he said to them, Fear not, don't be afraid, because I've redeemed you. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Do not fear, for I am the I am, the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. You see, in the Old Testament, the Lord God didn't just reveal that he ruled over the circumstances of life. He also promised to rescue people from the chaos and disorder and pain and suffering of our world. We touched on this last week as we looked at how the feeding of the 5,000 is like a picture of the great feast that God promises to bring his people to. And in Isaiah 43, God promises that he will get them there. He's powerful enough to do it. The imagery is that of the exodus, where God was able to rescue people from slavery in Egypt through the water of the Red Sea and bring them to the promised land. And in Isaiah 43, God says, when you see how messed up the world is, you don't need to be afraid because I am the God who, just as I rescued the people from Egypt, can bring you into a wonderful, restored new creation a new heavens and a new earth where there is no more suffering and pain anymore. 
And Jesus comes and shows that he is precisely that God who made that promise. Uh, I went to a wedding um, just about two years ago, I think it was, and I had just a brilliant conversation with a group of old friends of mine. Um, One of them raised, I think one of, you know, it's one of those big questions um, that we all, you know, think about from time to time. If you won the lottery, what would you do with the money? And... um, You know, as a standard answer, I always think if I won the lottery, I'd be quite surprised, since in my life I've never played the lottery. But there we were, talking about this question of, what would you do if you win the lottery? And one of my friends pipes up and said, you know what, I would make sure that all my friends were well looked after. I'd make sure you all had a home to live in, and um, and enough money to to live on. And um, that's the kind of friends you want to stay in touch with, isn't it? But... um, But promises are cheap, aren't they? Promises are cheap. My friend has not won the lottery, or at least if he has, he's not been in touch on the text just yet. He's not won the lottery. He has nothing to promise with. And to be honest, it was just one of those idle conversations at a wedding reception. I didn't go away and write down, Dear diary, if Rob ever wins the lottery, I am sorted. Because promises are cheap. But now, what if Rob had multi-millions of pounds in the bank account already, and on the day he said that, he wrote me a cheque for a million pounds right there and then, and said, don't worry, the rest will be coming when you need it. Well, it'd be a different order of promise, wouldn't it? And a different order of friendship, frankly. Here is the Lord Jesus... God in the Old Testament said, I can deliver you like the Exodus, as if through water, I have the power you've seen from the Exodus to bring you into a new heavens and a new earth, to end disorder and chaos and suffering and pain. I can do it. And here it's like Jesus offers the down payment as he stands there in front of the disciples and shows them that he really does have the power and the inclination to do it. He can and he will. And so he promises, do not be afraid because I am. Take courage. Not just a powerful God, but a good one. Jesus is the Lord God who will rescue his people. Read on in Matthew's gospel. He went to a cross to rescue us from the way that we've rejected God and other people and from the judgment that deserves. He rose again from the dead to demonstrate once more that he can bring us to a wonderful new creation, free from pain and suffering, and all the disorder and chaos we see in the world around us. He can do it. And so what do we do about this? Well, let me ask you this. What do you make of the um, the account with Peter just at the end of this little narrative? I mean, it's, got, it's, it's an unusual one, isn't it? It's, it? Matthew includes it, which the other gospel writers don't. And, um, and what do you make of Peter in this account? Do you think, is he, a, is he a good example of a Christian believer or a bad one? He starts off well, doesn't he? Verse 28, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come to you on the water. Here's a man who's read Isaiah 43, and he says, if it's really true then you'll be able to lead me through the water. So let me do it. And Jesus says, verse 29, come. Then Jesus got down out of the boat and walked on the water and came towards Jesus. But when he saw the wind, 
He was afraid and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. And I think it's a gentle rebuke. It's hard to imagine that Jesus is really gunning for him here, but it is a rebuke. You of little faith, why did you doubt? For what reason did you doubt? And when he brings him into the boat, they bow down and worship Jesus, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. And you see, I think this account with Peter, it shows us the big application of this passage. It's not just to show us Jesus, but it's to show doubters that we need to fix our eyes on the greatness of Jesus. It's as we see Jesus for who he is that our doubts are dispelled And we trust him for who he is. When Peter looks to Jesus and he says, if it's you, tell me to come on the water. He walks on the water, but it's precisely verse 30, when he saw the wind, when he saw the storm kicking up the waves, he was afraid. And so he began to sink and he needs to cry, Lord, save me. It's precisely then that he doubts because he takes his eyes off the greatness and glory of Jesus. And I don't want to just, um, I don't want to just spiritualize this, but it does seem that as you read through Matthew's gospel, this is something of a foretaste of Peter's journey with Jesus. Lots of the same words are used to describe Peter's um, experience over the next um, 12 chapters of Matthew's gospel. Peter, who, who believes in Jesus, Peter, who declares later on in chapter 16, you are the Christ, the Son of God. Peter, who boldly says to Jesus, even if everyone else deserts you, I will stand by you. And yet Peter, when the heat of Um, persecution and suffering comes as Jesus is being dragged to a cross and he's being asked do you stand with that guy that we're about to kill well Peter takes his eyes off the greatness and glory of Jesus and denies him three times and it's only that when Jesus is risen that he reaches out a hand to Peter and restores him and for what reason did Peter doubt Well, he lost sight of Jesus in his goodness and glory. And you see, Peter is the leader of the disciples. Peter shows us the dynamics of discipleship. That when we see Jesus clearly, when we keep our eyes fixed on his greatness and glory, we find faith. We find that we trust him. The evidence compels us to confidently believe in him. And when we doubt, whatever else is going on in our circumstances, in our lives, in our, in our rational minds, in our hearts, we've lost sight of his greatness and his goodness. We, um, we have our eyes fixed on all manner of other things which frighten us, and we just begin to lose sight of him. And the answer, well, cry out to him, Lord, save me, and see his power and goodness clearly again, that he's the Lord God who rules creation and who will rescue you if you're one of his people. This is the medicine for our doubts that Matthew is giving us. See Jesus for who he is and find that your trust in him grows. It's not the the power of our faith that matters, but the object of our faith, who we trust.
How often is it that um, when um, Christians experience doubts, the way we deal with it is to, um, is to be quiet about it and move away from our Christian friends? Uh, you know, I'm struggling with doubt at the moment, so I'll just, um, you know, I'll, I'll just avoid going to church this Sunday because it just feels too hard. I, I certainly won't tell anyone about it. I can't, I can't read my Bible this morning because, well, does God even exist? Would it even be worth it? And yet, do you see, that's the exact opposite of what we need. What we need is to have our eyes fixed on Jesus again through the eyewitness accounts in the Bible. We need to see him and cry out to him as he is. How often with Christian friends are we content to let them just go a week or two without coming along to church? Or or, or do we accept the reasoning of I'm struggling a bit so I'm finding it hard to read the Bible rather than beg them to get it open and see who Jesus is once again? Do you see, this is why we need the old familiar truths of the Gospels. I bet for many of you this is not the first time you've been in church and looked at this passage together and had a sermon on it. I'm sure it's not the first time that you've read it. Maybe for some you're looking into it, and it is. And I hope it's, it's grabbed your heart. But for many of us, this is a familiar text. But we need to hear it again, don't we? We need the same old gospel truths, the same old eyewitness evidence laid out before us week by week and day by day so that in our doubts, we can see him, be reminded and trust and find that our faith grows in strength. It's why we need to come to the table and receive bread and wine and be reminded once again that he died for us so that we see him as he is and our doubts are dispelled and we learn to trust. Let me pray for us that this evening and this week that would be what we do. Our Lord God, Lord God, who rules creation and who will rescue your people. Please would you deal with our little faith and our doubts. Show us more of who Jesus is this evening and this week that we might trust him more. And in the face of our doubts, help us to be honest about them, to confront them and to meet them with the reality of who Jesus is. In his name, amen.